All right, we're in Romans 5. The uh, last 10 verses, we're picking up, by the way, right where we left off. We're going consecutively through uh, Paul's letter to the to the Romans. Uh, we had a break for Christmas, so we're coming back to uh, areas where we've been studying the Word back in December, in the earlier parts of December. The last 10 verses of, of Romans 5 lay out one primary uh, idea or proposition. There, there's a lot here, and I am today, I'm, I'm, I'm wishing I could squeeze everything that I have to say all into one message, but we are too accustomed, you know, to half-hour sermons, so this is one of those times I feel compromised by that as my studies have led me to develop really one long study, one long sermon, but I will endeavor to divide it up over two Sundays. So this study is not complete without what we will do next week, and uh, I hope you'll be with me uh, to conclude the message next Sunday. We pick up the reading then from this great section of God's Word, Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, for until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many." The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for on the one hand the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation, but on the other hand the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ." So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. And our memory verse for the month, for as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So what is this thing that we call history? Yeah, it is a, uh, a record of events past, but really it's a record of only a tiny, tiny fraction of those events. We call certain, his, certain occurrences historic. And, and what do we mean by that? We use that word historic really to mean important because history is really the record of occurrences that someone or some group has deemed to be important. Do historians have a bias? Well, of course they do, and it is possible that some of the most important events of history 
have been completely lost to us. We know nothing about them because the historians miss their significance. So as Christians, we can think of a number of historical events that are a big deal to us that mean nothing to the broader unbelieving world, but we regard them from our worldview as monumental events with lasting, maybe even eternal impact, right? This is where you say right. There you go. We Christians have something really special, though, in God's book. Among other things, it is a book of history. And having been written and edited by the Holy Spirit of God, we know that it records the most important things for us to know. It tells us about the most important persons in history, at least up to 2,000 years ago. And our text for today certainly does that with its focus on two historical characters. And who might they be? Well, they be Adam, the first human created by God from the dust of the earth, and Jesus Christ conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary some 2,000 years ago. The last chapter of Romans focused on another very important historical character. That was Abraham, a uh, very important figure. But if you had to narrow, by the way, Taylor last week said Moses was the most important Old Testament character <laughs> in Israel. And I was thinking, nah, I think Abraham, but probably even uh, this one I'm talking about today. Uh, if, if you had to narrow the big names of history down to two, that'd be hard. But Abraham would not make the cut. Jesus is obviously at the head of the list. And I would suggest from our passage today that Adam, Adam ends up ranking in second place. This Adam made some choices. He did some things that uh, more extensively impacted the entire human race than anyone since, save our Lord himself. Ah, now, I, I have here... Uh, that I brought up front with me, a, a large book. Anybody recognize this? Now, this is the uh, Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. Okay, the Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. It is a uh, record of what Adolf Hitler did to bring ruin and destruction on so much of our planet. It is over, as you can see, 12 hundred pages. If anybody wants to borrow it, there it is. Let me know. What Adam did was yet more devastating, and it is described for us in three words. Not 1,200 pages. Three words. Uh, there we meet the serpent, whom we know to be a fallen angel named Satan, and there in Genesis 3 we read of the fall of man into sin. You know the general story, so I'm going to read just the one verse, Genesis 3 and verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her, 
and he ate. You see the three words there? It's the whole story. And he ate. And by the way, we still today have a massive problem with food, don't we? <laughs> oh, my. Uh, but how can those three words be so consequential? Well, behind them lay the character, the authority, the holiness of God. Behind them we find a clear and explicit command of God forbidding the consumption of that particular fruit. Behind them we find promises, the explicit promise of death in response to disobedience, the implied promise of life forever if the Word of God is honored. The rest of Genesis 3 begins to set forth the consequences of Adam's choice. Genesis 4, where Cain murders his brother Abel, goes further. Then you have Genesis 6, which is the flood of judgment. Then you have the rest of the Bible, which is a record of fall, of judgment, and of redemption all sort of mixed together in this crazy casserole we call human history. But the Puritan Thomas Goodwin, I think, wisely said, when God looks at our planet, he sees two men, Adam and Jesus, and all of us fall under one or the other. So next Sunday, we are going to hold up Adam and Jesus to compare and contrast. Hopefully, it will be an important and enriching exercise. But today, let's see if we can get very clear on the relationship between sin and death, which the Adam story helps explain. Back to Romans 5 and verse 12. Just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Notice it says that sin entered into the world. Sin was something that already marked the angelic host, especially in the being we know as the devil, but it was the choice of Adam that gave it entrance into our world with all of the extreme consequences of that. Death spread like the Omicron virus. Everybody got it. Verse 14 says death reigned. And who is responsible for that sad state of affairs? Well, one answer is certainly it is Adam. Verse 15 says that by the transgression of the one... Adam, the many were made sinners. Verse 16 says that judgment came from one transgression. That one we read of in Genesis 3, 6, and he ate. Verse 17, again, because of that one trans, uh, transgression, Romans 5, 17, because of that one transgression, death did what? It rained. And there, there's that word again, death Reigned. Are, are, you, are you getting this? It's critical for us to understand the world in, in this light. We are a planet, we are a race that is under judgment, that is under the reign of sin and death. That death is understood primarily as separation from God and from His blessing, but it is in part our condemnation by a just judge. And so verse 18 points us back uh, to Adam again when it says, through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men. Can one man actually do that much evil? 
that much harm? And the answer is apparently so. Apparently so. You think of the evil that was wrought upon our planet by Adolf Hitler, by Joseph Stalin, by Mao, by Pol Pot. No one has wrought more devastation than Adam uh, because his sin unleashed all the other sin that were to follow, that were to follow him. Uh, look at verse 19 again in our passage. Through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. And finally in verse 21, it says again, death reigned. So probably it would be good for us to go back and pay a little visit to the Garden of Eden there in Genesis 3. I expect you know the basic outline of the story there. God placed Adam in a garden and said uh, to Adam, that, that one tree right there, oh, that, there's a tree. How, we still have the Christmas tree up. This is convenient for my purposes. <laughs> so there's no fruit on there. So uh, that, that one tree right there, that is forbidden, okay? Don't eat the fruit of that tree, if you do, you will die. And Adam had to Google that word to see what that meant, you know. Uh, if you do, you'll die. After that, God creates the woman, Eve, and in chapter 3, the serpent comes to Eve to deceive her, and she bit on his lure. She took the fruit, and she ate. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us much about what Adam is doing while Eve and the serpent are having their conversation. Wouldn't you like to know? Is he out there going, no, no, trying to, trying to get Eve to, uh, you know, turn down the devil's offer? Uh, we, is he listening at all? Was there a time lag between Eve eating the fruit and Adam partake? So many questions we would like to have answered, but the clear basic point is that God gave Adam one clear prohibition, <laughs> and that's the very thing he did. But such a little thing, right? I mean, just a bite of some forbidden fruit. Mother says to uh, her son, Bobby, last night there were two pieces of pie in the pantry, and today there's only one. Can you explain that? And Bobby says, oh, I guess I didn't see the other piece. <laughs> so we can joke about little sins like eating something you were not to eat, but what is the bigger picture here? It, it, it's, it's, it's all about governance. It's, it's all about authority. It's about the relationship between the creator and the created. The choice of Adam was to despise the Word of God, and that is a big deal, and that's all it took. Out of the garden they go, spiritual death, separation from God, descends upon our planet. The seeds of physical death are planted within us and start to grow. The context for violence is established and yields murder in chapter 4. And when human beings try to understand what has gone wrong with the human race, where all our personal and social ills have come from, how people can be so uncaring, the only folks with an explanation are the people of the book. Curiously, they're also the only ones with a solution as well. We are taught in the Word that humans turn their back on God and their world grew dark and sad so that sin abounds 
and death reigns. So various so-called kings come and go. Their reigns are limited and brief, but death remains universal and undefeated and is the heir of every throne. Why does death reign? <coughs> because sin reigns, and sin leads to death. God said that from the very start. He said it in Romans as well. You know it, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. In the epistle of James, death is even traced back to human lust. When lust has conceived, James 1.15, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So brothers and sisters, this is, uh, this is pretty basic, but I fear, I fear we miss it. Maybe we have heard it so much, it is lost on us. Sin brings forth death. This is why we in the church make a big deal about sin. This is why we hate it. This is why we fight against it. This is why we resist it. And all of these things make us oddballs. The world looks at us as if we are fools for being so very concerned about sin, they do not get it. The really enlightened ones will even say that, well, sin, that's an outdated ancient category, right? Whatever happened to sin? We have moved on past that in our evolution. But without a doctrine of sin, you cannot explain the human experience. You can't begin to explain it. As noted, Genesis 4 records the murder of Abel by his brother Cain. Genesis 5 then records the generations of Adam, the genealogies. And here's how that reads, by the way. Genesis 5, verse 5, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Verse 8, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Verse 11, all the days of Enosh, 905 years, and he died. You see a pattern starting to develop here? It keeps going. It goes on for seven generations. They didn't all live the same duration, but the stories all ended the same, and it keeps on going. There is nothing that ruins a good time that some of us are having in this world like a reminder that it will all come crashing down in the end. God's word would have us never, ever forget that. It reminds us that we are like a vapor. We're like a flower that blooms today and wilts tomorrow. We read from First Peter, the grass withers, the flower fades. Only the word of God lasts forever. No matter how vigorous you may feel right now, you know what's coming. How does that sit with you? I doubt it sits very well. Death just does not feel right, does it? At best, it is a uh, rock in your shoe, it's a bug in your bed, until we learn from the gospel how to deal with the impermanence 
of this life until we grasp what is offered by Jesus in the way of righteousness and justification and life that answers to what was passed down from Adam in the way of sin and condemnation and death. We're going to always be uncomfortable with the idea, either death as eternal torment or death simply as termination. That is why all that Paul is addressing in Romans is so vital for us. Our devotion as a church to getting this gospel message, to grasping it with mind and heart, it's part of our way of taking seriously the threat of death and getting ourselves, getting our friends, getting our children prepared to face it with peace. And of course, what the gospel tells us is that the key of dealing with this death problem is dealing with the sin problem, which is what Jesus does on our behalf. Now, there are, there are some things about our passage, I would note, that can be difficult to understand. So I'm going to comment on a few of those before we wrap up today. Most commentators, in fact, see verses 13 to 17 as kind of a parenthesis in the apostles' argument. It seems like as he's working his way through his presentation of the gospel, some potential objections come to his mind, and he tries to address them. One he doesn't get into, but uh, you and I might, is the role of Eve vis-a-vis Adam in the account of man's fall. Why is Adam the focus and not Eve? Why do we men always get picked on, huh? We get blamed for everything. (laughs) Well, the answer to that, why Adam, not Eve, is the focus, is that Adam and Eve were not completely the same. Uh, they were different. That's why. Newsflash, men and women are not exactly the same. Adam and Eve were different. They had different roles. Adam was created first. It was to Adam that the commandment came. The point is not that Eve or her daughters are not responsible Not that they have no direct dealings with God themselves. The point is that God holds men responsible for a unique role in the ways of leadership and protection and provision. So men and future men, some of you boys, future men, God designed you for this burden of responsibility. It is true in the family. It is true in the church. It is your calling, and it can be your glory. We will speak more next week about federal headship. It's an important idea that is far too little understood among us. Let's see if we can cover verses 13 and 14. Some, uh, uh, somewhat difficult passage before we go today. Verse 13, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. So what's that about? Paul is referring to the time of history between the fall of Adam and the giving of the law to his people at Mount Sinai and through Moses. At best, we know generations came and generations went and did not have the written word of God. They did not have a Ten Commandments. (laughs) On what basis were those folks between Adam and Moses, on what, what basis were they judged? Huh. 
You'll remember, please, from chapter 1 of Romans that Paul says men who did not have the written word still knew enough about God to be without excuse for their disregard of him and his will, but the accounting of that sin is different. They are not held responsible for failure to honor their parents per se, but they are for their general sinfulness and their hostility to God. We can see this from the fact that they all died, which is the judgment for sinners. Okay? Paul goes on to say in verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. We're going to focus on that last phrase next Sunday, but let's look at the first part of verse 14. Now, John MacArthur tries to explain it this way. He says, we don't die because we do deeds of sin. We die because sin is in us working death, end quote. Paul mentions the idea that death reigns over individuals who did not sin as Adam did. What is in view here? Well, uh, again, these would be people who had never heard, never read the law of God, never had God point a tree to them and say, don't eat the fruit of, of that one. He did that for Adam, and yet Adam rebelled. Now, what came to my mind uh, is the imagined case of a 15-year-old who stays home while the parents go out for the evening, and when the parents come home, they, they find the house a mess because the young man at home alone was irresponsible. He did not treat his parents' home with appropriate respect. Is that young man liable to punishment? Sure, he knew better than he behaved, but let's tweak the story a bit. Mom says to the 15-year-old, let's say he's a son, uh, we are going out for the evening, and whatever you do, do not eat the cake on the counter. That is for Bible study tomorrow. Mom comes home, and the cake is half gone. Uh-oh. Different situation, isn't it? I mean, both situations involve sin, but the latter involved the violation of a more specific communicated, laid out requirement. When verse 14 speaks of those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, one good way to understand that is just what I am describing. They did not have explicit, clear commandments of God to which they were reacting. The New Living Translation actually translates it this way. Everyone died from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even those who did not disobey an explicit commandment of God as Adam did. So there's no particular relevance for us here because you and I, we have the full statement of the law and of the gospel, and we are responsible, much like Adam was. When you and I disobey, we do so with full knowledge. We do so, to fa and we face full responsibility for, for every sinful choice. However, the sinfulness that Paul largely has in view in our passage is the sinfulness that we inherit from our forefather, Adam. Even in verse 12, when it says, death 
spread to all because all sin. What is likely in view is not the actual sinful acts committed by the offspring of Adam and Eve. No, no. The apostle wants us to understand that you and I were guilty in Adam and through Adam. His violation made us, yes, all of us sinners because he stood in our place. He was our federal head. He was our representative. Now, you have likely heard the term original sin, right? Original sin. And it means that all humans since the garden were born not only with a corrupt nature, but with an actual guilt inherited from Adam. We are in Adam, partakers of his corruption, partakers of his guilt. Everyone understands the corruption part, I think. Yes, we are born with this tendency to sin, which we will show at some point, but the Word of God says that we are also born guilty, which makes us liable to death. You'll notice that even infants who have never consciously chosen to sin, they sometimes still die. This is why our confusion, or I'm sorry, confusion, our confession of faith, which hopefully eliminates a lot of confusion, our confession of faith says this, follow closely. They, referring to Adam and Eve, being the root of all mankind, the guilt of this sin was imputed, the guilt of this sin was imputed, and the same death and sin and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation, end quote. The guilt of this sin was imputed. Romans 5.13 says that before the giving of the law, specific sins were not imputed, not counted to sinners. So why would they die? Why experience judgment? Why need a Savior? Because of the imputation of Adam's guilt. That was and is enough to bring us under judgment. Now, I want that to seek in a bit, and I, I hope it prepares you for next Sunday when we will look further at the imputation of Adam's guilt to all the human race, and then secondly, and gloriously, at the imputation of Christ's righteousness to all who believe. Good news is coming. The dark stuff about Adam and sin and condemnation and death, it's only the context for the explosion of gospel glory that follows. That's why I need you to come back. And if you can, bring somebody with you. As Ben mentioned, next Sunday would be a good day to invite somebody as we get into the great news of Christ and how we can be in Him and rescued from our sin through Him. I close the day with a taste of what is ahead next week, a quote from the old Puritan Horatius Bonar. Well, actually, he's not a Puritan technically, but he's of the ilk of a Puritan. 150 years ago, he wrote this, the first Adam dies, and we die in him. But the second Adam dies, and we live in him. The first Adam's grave proclaims only death. The second Adam's grave announces life. We look into the grave of the one, and we see only darkness, corruption, and death. We look into the grave of the other, and we find there only light and corruption and life. For he is risen, risen as our forerunner into the heavenly paradise, the home of the redeemed. As one of our hymns invites us to do, Come behold the wondrous mystery. He, the perfect Son of Man, in His living and His suffering, never trace nor stain of sin. See the true and better Adam come to save the hell-bound man.
There's not any more, is there? That's all I meant to quote. Great hymn. I think we should close with that. You think you could pull that off, Kevin, uh, and your guys? Yeah. If y'all can come on up, and we'll close in prayer, and then we'll sing that as our closing reflection together. Lord, we look forward to the next Sunday when we get to compare and contrast the first Adam and the last Adam. But even now, give our hearts, Lord, grace to say yes and to walk in the full riches of what we have in Jesus. Thrill our hearts with these truths. Lord, impress upon us the dark, sad realities that are clearly all around us, if we're honest, that are laid before us in your word as well. But we thank you that as we open your book, we not only see the explanation of what's wrong with our world, but we see the solution, the deliverance, the redemption that is available to us in Jesus. Lord, for those who came in today blind to these things, we pray you open eyes and let all of us see and be glad. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.